Folks, if you're like me, you have some serious problems. Being like me, for instance, would actually be one of them. But also, you probably find that whenever a Democrat politician appears before you at a rally or on your television set or in the horrific nightmares that haunt your tortured soul in the sweat-stained watches of the hellish darkness, he or she is always telling you that you have to pay your fair share. And it's only right that we ask everyone to pay their fair share. Those at the top have to pay their fair share. If I'm elected president, you're going to start paying your fair share of taxes. Now, I know what you're wondering. You're wondering, gee, Democrat politician, what is my fair share? Fair share of what? What's fair about it? And how can I figure out the exact amount? Well, wonder no more. Today, exclusively here at The Daily Wire, we are offering the Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator, especially designed to answer the question, what is my fair share? For instance, say you want to know what is my fair share of your college tuition. Just enter the answers to these three simple questions into the Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator. One, did I have any role in conceiving you? Two, did my wife give birth to you? Three, do you have my last name? When you're finished, superimpose your answers on one another until you have one big N-O. Now remove the N. If what you're left with looks like a tremendous zero, that's my fair share of your tuition. Enter that amount into your files and then buzz off and stop bothering people. The Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator works equally well with other calculations such as what is my fair share of your health expenses, what is my fair share of your childcare, and what is my fair share of your cost of living. Using the handy-dandy Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator, you can answer these questions almost instantly, leaving you plenty of time to go out and start looking for a job so you can pay your fair share of your stuff, which means paying for all of it like I do with mine. Yes, the Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator. Order today to find out how much I owe. And when I say owe, that's how much. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. <laughs> we, have, we have great sponsors. We have great, the Clavomatic Fair Share Calculator and Hillsdale College. This is a, these are great sponsors. All right, Hillsdale College, we have to talk about them. They are a terrific college, but they also are spreading the word about the Constitution. You may have heard of the Constitution, some of you, if you're following Senator Ted Cruz's campaign. If you're not, you don't know what it is, but it's this kind of brown, wrinkly piece of paper with all your rights written on it. So what if it was a requirement for every person in public office to sleep with a copy of the Constitution under their pillow, and what if you crept in at night and wrote the words on their forehead with a pin? And instead of simple random drug tests, we'd have simple random constitutional rights tests to find out if they knew what it is they're supposed to be doing for a living. But if you want to fully understand the Constitution and your constitutional rights, I encourage you to check out the free online course Constitution 101 at Hillsdale College. This is the real Constitution, the one that doesn't have the right to an abortion and gay marriage in it. It's the one that the founders wrote. It's different than the one you hear about in the media. You can sign up for Hillsdale College's Constitution 101 for free, <coughs> pardon me, at hillsdale.edu backslash Andrew. That's so they know that I sent you. That's hillsdale.edu backslash Andrew. Read the Constitution, learn about it, and know your rights. All right. Here we are. We're back. We're back in the center of the storm. The, the still eye of the hurricane swirling around. 
Shapiro is in the New York Times today. Did you? <laughs> I don't know if he's. I don't think he's on the front page of the paper edition, but he was actually on my, on my app on the front page of the app edition. I was like, I know that guy. I know that guy. That's that same guy. So, so all hell is now broken loose. So Shapiro left the Breitbart sites because of Michelle Fields was roughed up, and they just threw her under the bus. They almost literally threw her under the bus. You know, she was roughed up by a Trump operative, and not only did they not really demand a resignation or apology or anything, they actually undermined her story, making it look like she was lying. Shapiro had enough. He quit, and now a bunch of other people quit. And of course, they handled it with the absolute style and class we can now expect from the Breitbart site, which is they put out this nasty piece, this nasty thing that said, Ben Shapiro, this is the story that was briefly, briefly on the um, on the, the Breitbart websites. Ben Shapiro betrays loyal Breitbart readers in pursuit of Fox News contributorship. That's the headline. Former Breitbart News editor-at-large Ben Shapiro announced Sunday evening via left-wing BuzzFeed that he is abandoning Andrew Breitbart's lifelong best friend, his widow, handpicked management team, and friends in pursuit of an exclusive, an elusive contributorship at the Fox News Channel. Breitbart California editor Joel B. Pollack, Shapiro's friend and fellow Orthodox Jew, expressed concern for his former colleague. I'm worried. I had enjoyed listening to Ben read Breitbart California stories word for word without attribution on his morning radio show. Now what will he do for content? This is a vicious attack. So then, then of course, they take it down and they apologize because they know what every lawyer knows when he, you know, when he says something that he knows is going to be objected to, you can't unhear it once you hear it. And on the internet, nothing goes away. Everybody's got a screenshot, so there it is. But people keep dumping this. Now, I think it's five people have resigned, maybe six. You know, so everybody is is leaving the place. And you know, people say the site is imploding, but I don't think that's quite fair. What's imploding is the is the essence of the site. The site is going to be tremendously successful. The site is now, as Ben said, he called it Trump Pravda. That's what it is. All those Trump bots are not going to leave. They're going to, you know, sit around cursing Ben and slurring him on Twitter, but they're not going to leave the Breitbart site. So the Breitbart site's not imploding. It's been, it's gained like something like 50% readership since it started doing this, since it threw away Andrew's mission and just became, you know, Trump's uh, PR team. And this is an old left-wing strategy, okay? The left-wing strategy is to take over a respected institution, the New York Times. I call it a former newspaper because it used to be a great newspaper. It really did. I mean, they, you know, people on both sides would get angry at the New York Times because they went after everybody, and they went after everybody fairly, and they called you out, and they were probably more liberals in the paper than not, but they still, they used to be a fair... Now the left takes it over, and so it has all this respect that it garnered from being the real New York Times, but now it's just uh, the zombie New York Times, right? It's, it's walking out, it looks like the New York Times, but that not known more than New York Times. It's like, it's like invasion of the body snatchers. Somebody took over on New York Times. That is not the New York Times. Uh, universities, the same thing. You know, these universities have a hun hundreds of years of history as institutions. They gain, you know, Ivy League schools. They gain all this authority. And, you know, when you say, oh, you went to the school, it means a big deal. The left takes them over, guts it of substance, turns it into a vehicle. And until people discover until the word gets out that now you're just reading, you know, what looked like the, what looks like the New York Times, but is really zombie New York Times. You're just going to what looks like Ivy League University, but is really zombie left-wing Ivy League University. Until that word gets out, they have a lot of power to spread their message. So now that's what's happening with Breitbart. You know, the Breitbart is 
no longer what Breitbart was, which was an attack on the press, you know, a way of straightening out the press and making it fair and calling them out for leaving ordinary Americans in the lurch and dissing what people believed in this country and our traditions and sort of selling as news what was really left-wing propaganda. That's why Breitbart created those sites. And I, I have this now heartbreaking memory of standing on the corner uh, with Andrew in Westwood, California, which is where UCLA is, and just listening to him for like an hour as he explained to me what these sites were going to be and how he was going to roll them out, what they were going to look like. And the thing we all knew about Andrew is when he described this crazy stuff to you, it all happened, you know. I mean, it wasn't. It sounded like a pipe dream, but it all happened. If you want to hear a, a more about that, I wrote an article called The Breitbart Building in City Journal right after Andrew died, the day he died, I think I wrote it. And uh, you can hear more about that. But I, I remember him describing it to him. But now that's gutted. It's just this, this Trump site doing what it does. So Ben went on Megyn Kelly. And I feel a little ridiculous playing a Ben cut because he's probably in the next room having makeup. <laughs> doing makeup. You just drag him in here and ask him what he thinks. But, but Megyn asked an important question. I think we should hear both the question and Ben's answer. So why you know, is this a story? Where... I mean, in Ben, in your view, Ben, mm -hmm. apart from, you know, the implosion of Breitbart and, and it's, it's part of the civil war that we're seeing in some, you know, from some on the right. Why is this a story? Well, I mean, I think the idolatrous worship of the Trump campaign by some people in the media leading to them covering up the truth is is a major story. And as you say, I think it's, it's, it's again a story because the Trump campaign never acknowledges mistakes, never acknowledges their responsibility for violence, never acknowledges anything that they do wrong. It's a no apologies campaign. That's why he's popular. But that does have consequences and it does have victims. You know, in this case, it was just a bruise on the arm. But, you know, th there are other cases where it's more than that. You know, that, of course, is absolutely right. And But Megan's question is also interesting, the way she asked it, because what's happening at Breitbart is indicative of what's happening because of the Trump campaign to the entire conservative movement. You know, there was no conservative media in, in this country to, to speak of, no popular conservative news media, until the 1990s, say, you know. Rush, I guess, came up late 80s, and then the Clinton thing set him on fire, so the 90s Rush became a big deal. I think Fox was 96 or something like this. So now we've had like 25 years, say, of a powerful right-wing voice, and it's time to assess that voice and see how it succeeded and how it failed. And I think it has, it is right now suffering from a, a symptom. You know, things crack along their fault lines, and I think the right-wing media is right now cracking along its fault line. And the fault line is this. If you go on the New York Times and you, and you read their op-ed page, I call it knucklehead row, okay? These are some of the most respected columnists in the country, and they are, with the exception of Ross Douthat, they are idiots. I mean, they are just, they have the big education, they have the nice suits, they have the polite way of talking, and they are just, they're just dumb. They say things that are not true, that don't hold up under scrutiny. One after another, I mean, the, the uh, Krugman, the economist, just absolute crazy stuff that he says. Uh, Thomas Friedman sounds like he phones in his column after he's had a few drinks. You know, <laughs> I, I hope that's not true, but, I, you know, I, it's what it sounds like. But, but they sound like that because they serve not just the intellectual wing of the Democrat Party, they also serve the base. There's nothing you can read in the New York Times that would offend Black Lives Matter, okay? Black Lives Matter is a racist mob as far as I'm concerned, but, the, but knucklehead row at the New York Times, a former newspaper, they basically are selling that information. On the right, we have this fault line between the intellectuals 
and the base. The intellectuals and the base are not the same people, and they're not talking to one another. Okay, if you go on National Review, you get the intellectuals. You go on Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal, you get the upper class, the kind of business class, and all this. But you go on Fox. Breitbart, the New York Post, and they are serving the base, and they're serving the base, and their bread and butter depends on the base. And those two sections of the conservative movement are not talking to each other, and that, we've talked about this before in, in the arts, that's how you know when an art is dying. You know an art is dying when the novels that get good reviews are not the novels people read, when the movies that get good reviews are not the movies people see. That's what you see now at the Oscars, why they have to nominate 500 films for an Oscar because they have to find one somebody saw, you know, because <laughs> most of the pictures that the, the press is going, oh, what a wonderful movie, nobody goes to see. Nobody wants to see those pictures. You know, they want to see Spider-Man and all this, and so there's been this big division. Well, the same division is happening in the conservative press, is that the base is talking about one thing, and the intellectuals, the upper crust, are talking about another thing, and one has, is not communicating with the other. You know, it's the job, it's the job of leaders, what they call in church thought leaders, to learn from the people they're supposed to teach, to learn what the people they're supposed to teach need and want and are looking for, and then find a way to get that to them without violating their principles. That's their job. You know, today is the Ides of March. Do you know what the Ides of March are? No? I, I, you know, I only ask because I don't, I don't mean to embarrass anybody. It's just that certain things used to be common knowledge. Like in the old days, if you said, like, Bugs Bunny could say, beware the Ides of March. And a 10-year-old kid would know what he was talking about. The Ides of March is the day that Julius Caesar was assassinated by the Republican senators, the, the senators who wanted to maintain the Republic, because... Caesar had violated the law by bringing his army into Rome. You weren't supposed to do that. That was when he crossed the Rubicon. That was the borderline. And he said, the die is cast. These are all these famous you know, lines that he said. And, they were, and the people were calling for him to become a king. And the people who wanted to restore the republic said, this is enough. And they went out and they, they murdered him in the Senate. They stabbed him to death in the Senate. And of course, I, I really hesitated to talk about this because I don't want anybody at any level to think that I'm suggesting any kind of political violence, because I'm not. And the reason I'm not has to do with what I'm about to say. The reason I'm not is because political violence only works against good people. It only works against people who are leading you to freedom, okay? You kill a tyrant, tyranny will live. You kill a Martin Luther King who was, uh, you know, a flawed man, but a, a great man, and his movement will be taken over by race baiters and corrupt, you know, uh, criminals, basically. You, if it doesn't have to be assassination, just death itself. Andrew Breitbart was not assassinated, but when he died, his sight was emptied of Andrew Breitbart content. When Judge Scalia died, uh, the court is now up for grabs by people who want to turn it into a wing of the left. And the reason assassination and death are so effective against good people is because people need leaders to take them to freedom, but they can find their way to slavery by themselves. Okay, that's that is like the the secret thing about it. Why assassinations don't work? Okay, and you know this is. I'm going to pause here just for a minute. I'm going to pause and just do our our serve our other sponsor because we love our sponsors and we love Reagan.com because they protect your privacy and that is a big big deal. You know you know that. The advertisers, companies scan your emails and they send you ads. They lift stuff out of your emails to your wife and your friends and they then send you ads. We know that the government has this huge net that's just pulling in 
every piece of information about you. They've never abused it, of course. We trust our government implicitly. They can know everything about us. But for those of us who don't, for those strange people who strangely would like to protect their privacy, the way to do it is to go to Reagan.com and get an email address. It'll be your name at Reagan.com. And that way you also get to have President Reagan's name on your email, which is cool in and of itself. And they guarantee you that none of your emails will ever be scanned and they'll never be shared with third parties. So go to ReaganPrivacy.com and secure your personal private email address. And if you do it at the end of the show, after you finish listening to me, because I don't want you to interrupt listening to me, but at the end of the show, if you go to ReaganPrivacy.com and sign up for an email, you get two months free. In the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible. In the Bible, the Jews are living free. The Jews live free. Each man lives in his own way, tends to his own farm, pays for his own stuff. And when there's trouble, a judge arises to, to pull them together into an army. Samson comes along, or Gideon, somebody comes along, takes the lead. When the crisis is passed, he gets out. The people go back to being free. They have prophets who lead them. They have prophets who teach them and talk to them, who tell them the word of God. When the prophet became corrupt, when prophet Samuel let his sons lead them, the people said, we want a king. We want a king. And Samuel said, do you know what's going to happen if you have a king? We don't care. We want a king. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. Give us a king. And God said to Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. <laughs> okay? <laughs> because God wants you to be free, but people have to lead you to freedom. So the reason that the assassination of Julius Caesar did didn't work, it didn't work, was because the people no longer wanted to be free. And if you read the Shakespeare play, uh, Julius Caesar, you know, it's got factual inaccuracies, but it's a very good Hollywood version of the actual event, because what Hollywood does is it takes events and it condenses them into ideas, and that's what Shakespeare does. After Julius Caesar is slaughtered, right, these, these Republican senators go out to and kill him because they want to preserve the Republic, because people want to uh, promote him to be king, you know, this this general, essentially. And after they kill him, in the play and in real life to some degree, Brutus, who is Caesar's friend and the head assassin, goes out and makes a speech to the people. And he sort of says, you know I'm a good guy, you know I'm an honorable man, and I, I loved Caesar, but I had to do this because he was ambitious and he was going to become king and I had to stop him. And the people go, yay, Brutus, yay, Brutus. And then Brutus does the stupidest thing that he could possibly do, he walks away. He goes home. He goes home. And this is, it's, it's not literally true, but it is true. The assassins left town because they didn't think, they thought, now the people will be free again. We've killed the guy who's going to make himself king. No problem. No problem. And in the Shakespeare play, Antony, who was one of Caesar's best friends and one of his generals, then gets up and makes one of the most famous speeches in literature. Now listen carefully to what he does. This is Marlon Brando from the movie Julius Caesar, and this is the famous Friends Roman Countryman speech. I'll just play a little bit of it, and I think you can at least follow what he's doing. Go ahead. them, the good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, 
So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? So, so he gets up there and he works the crowd, right? He says, yeah, you know, Brutus just told you he was ambitious. And he's an honorable man, but he wept for the poor. He brought home slaves that made us rich, you know, and then he, he ultimately, he has Caesar's will and the people start screaming. He works them up to such a fever pitch that he says, I don't want to read you the will because if I read you the will, you're going to go nuts. No, read us the will, read us the will. And of course, the will leaves all these, you know, things that's all this land that Caesar owned. It's a park for people to play in now. You know, it's, it's yeah. welfare. It's welfare bread and circuses, everything, you know, and this is why Juvenal, the great uh, satirical Roman poet of these times, said you sold your vote for bread and circuses, welfare and entertainment. That sounds familiar? <laughs> it should, because that's, that's what happens. You know, you think you have a, you know, a reality TV show guy running for president, bread and circuses, people will sell their vote. The, the point I'm making is the, the assassination didn't work because the people would no longer be free. The people can't be free if they will not be free, okay? The people need to be led to freedom. They can find their way to slavery on their own. And if the right-wing press has failed, it has failed at the very top level and at the basic level, where we failed, A, to listen to these people who are now raging after Donald, Donald Trump, an empty suit like Donald Trump. We failed to listen to those people and failed to be educated by them and failed to educate them back. You know, that's, that was our job, and that's what didn't happen. And that's why you get a hollow shell like Breitbart, which now all their profits, all their uh, purpose is in supporting this guy, Donald Trump, and the fact that they're no longer supporting the Constitution, that they're no longer longer. Uh, supporting American principle, conservative principles, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the people will not be free. When we lost the colleges, when we lost the universities, it fell to us to do get in there any way we could and spread the word, and it looks like right now that we failed. Lest you think that all the problems are on our side, by the way, I just uh, take a look at what's happening on the left. Here's, here's a rally for Hillary Clinton, one of the funniest pieces. I, if you're not watching, I'll try and describe it. Leave my mic on and I'll just try and describe it. They're in a gym. Go ahead and play it. People are talking, and this cheerleader lady gets up. <laughs> people, people are sleeping. Just crown her queen already and stop bothering me. I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm a Democrat, whoever corrupt the old lady, whatever, put her in there. You know. So Jeff Greenfield, 
who is a pal. He's he used to be on CNN, I think, and now he's uh, you know he's a, a liberal guy. I, I wouldn't call him far left, but he's a liberal guy. Renia Politico. He says, what exactly is going on here? Why won't Bernie Sanders go away? And why does Hillary Clinton's Bernie problem pose a danger not only to her but to the Democratic Party? Even if she does, as it seems highly likely, secure her party's nomination, which was you know the numbers are all in Hillary's favor. Three big reasons, says Jeff. First. Hillary Clinton commands little trust among an electorate that is driven today by mistrust. Second, her public life, the post she has held, the position she has adopted and jettisoned, define her as a creature of the establishment at a time when voters regard the very idea of the establishment with deep antipathy. And finally, however she wishes it were not so, however much she argues that she represents the future as America's first prospective female president, Clinton still embodies the past, just as she did in 2008 when she lost to Barack Obama. And those are just her image problems, right? Forget about her policy, you know, forget about all the corruption scandals, the emails scandals. She's also been in a complete incompetent. You know, she engineered the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya. Now Libya is a failed state. She was up there with the support of uh, uh, Obama resetting the button in Russia. Remember the re- pressing the reset button in Russia? Putin just pulled out of Syria saying, uh, you know, to with you guys, Assad is now no, not going anywhere. Remember, Assad must go. No, no, no. You know, Putin decides what, when Assad goes and when he doesn't. And Obama said, oh, well, Putin's not a real leader because I'm on the right side of history. And Putin was on this side of history affecting events with force. That's what he was doing. So, you know, and that's all of that is owned by Hillary, including the Iran deal, right? Now Iran is developing missiles so they can take out, uh, uh, yeah, so they can take out anything they want, Israel, you know, Europe, whatever they like, with the nuclear weapons that Obama essentially allowed them to have. Her fingerprints are all over that. So she is a mess. And, and Bernie Sanders, you know, Bernie Sanders gets off light because first, for a couple of reasons. One, he's kind of funny, to look at, you know, he's he's an old New York, you know, communist, and it's just kind of comical what he's doing. Two, he's going to lose, so people aren't afraid of him. And three, he has integrity in the in the old sense of the word, in that everything he says makes sense. I mean, he doesn't change his opinions; he says the same things over and over again. He's not lying about everything. But he, you know, there I, there's a uh, an institute called the Independent Institute. It's a libertarian institute. It has a newsletter. Lawrence J. McQuillian writes that Bernie Sanders is morally unfit for office. Okay. And this is true. Bernie Sanders is morally unfit for office. The Soviet Union murdered tens of millions of people, enslaved hundreds of millions of people. They were just as bad as the Nazis. You know, we had to we had to link up with them to defeat the Nazis. They were just as bad in terms of body count. And here's what McQuillian writes. Bernie Sanders honeymooned in the USSR and praised the Soviet health care system. This is while they were locking up dissidents, killing people en masse. He traveled to communist Nicaragua in 1985 to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the Marxist-Sandinista regime and established a sister city partnership between Managua and Burlington, Vermont. I mean, these guys were murderers and tyrants. He took a trip to Cuba in 1989, 30 years after the end of the Cuban Revolution, and praised the Castro regime's education system two decades earlier. By giving socialism intellectual cover and acceptability, Bernie Sanders helped hide the bodies. In a 1989 interview, Sanders said socialism has a lot of different messages to different people. Sanders chooses to step around the Everest of murdered bodies, bodies murdered by socialism, without a tear, a scruple, a regret, an act of contrition. 
contrition or a re-evaluation of self, soul, and mind. He hides the truth from his young supporters, and that renders him morally unfit to be president. That is totally true. He, this is, you know, he's got blood on his hands. It was the American left, the useful idiots, as Lenin called them, who stood up for the system as they slaughtered people, enslaved them, and imprisoned them. I said it yesterday. I say it again today. Just because there are two evils doesn't mean there's a lesser of two evils, okay? Just because Trump is bad doesn't mean that Hillary and Bernie aren't just as bad. And I am seriously, I, this is... What is it? Are they calling it Super Tuesday again? Second Super Tuesday? Less Super? What is it? Yeah, mini Super Tuesday, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that Ted Cruz has a strategy because if he doesn't, we're in big trouble. All right, stuff I like. The last classy Hollywood liberal, Paul Newman. Yesterday I talked about uh, Ombre, which was a uh, uh, an Elmore Leonard novel that they made into this film. The same team, same writer-director team, earlier had made another film called HUD, and I never see anybody talk about this. Oh, that's right. We have This is... Uh, Newman plays an unscrupulous son of a scrupulous rancher, okay? Melvin Douglas plays his father, one of the great, great actors of the 30s and 40s. Even the, I think he was even in silent films, Melvin Douglas. And now he's an old man, and he plays Newman's father. And he can never uh, forgive Newman because Newman killed his other son in a car crash. And Brandon DeWild, DeWild? Brandon DeWild, I think it is, uh, plays a nephew who idolizes Paul Newman. He idolizes HUD. Because HUD seems to him like a man, just the same way people look at Trump and they think he's a man. Uh, HUD seems like a man. Brandon Will DeWild knew this part because he was the little boy in Shane, the kid who went, come back Shane. So he was always playing the kid who looked up to somebody. Here's the scene where HUD has taken Brandon DeWild out and gotten him drunk, and they come home, and uh, Newman is forced to face his father. Oh, it was dear Lord, it was dear Lord, it was Hey, Granda! All right, he's got you drunk. What else has he given you a taste for? All we have is a couple of drinks, is all. I don't remember you being a teetotaler. I drink. I don't object to his having whiskey. Well, something seems to be eating away at your liver. You, Hud. Like always. Hey, what are you climbing on Hud for? You think a lot of Hud, do you? You think he's a real man while you're being tucked in. You listen to him, Ancho. He's my daddy, and he knows. I know you. You're smart. You got your share of guts. You can talk a man into trusting you, and a woman into wanting you. Then I got it made, ain't I? To hear you tell well, it. Why don't you get it off your chest? I've been griping you all this time is what I've done to Norman. You were drunk and careless of your brother. You had 15 years to get over it. That's half of my life. That's not our quarrel, and never has been. What the hell it isn't? No, boy. I was sick of you a long time before that. Has a lot to say to our moment. It's a really uh, beautifully written, beautifully acted uh, movie. It's based on a novel by Larry McMurtry called Horseman Passed By. Uh, Larry McMurtry wrote um, Lonesome Dove, one of my favorite modern novels. That'll get a stuff I like one of these days. Great, great novel. The Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment, uh, Brokeback Mountain, I think he collaborated on. He's a really fine regional writer, and this is one of uh, the great movies of the 60s and uh, another one of Paul Newman's kind of lost classics from this period. Just had a series of great films. That's it. There'll be more tomorrow when we get the uh, primary results back. I'm living in fear until that moment. I'll be hiding under the desk. Uh, if things aren't uh, don't get good, I 
get any better, I'll just climb into the desk and you can just carry the desk out with me inside it. Until then, though, I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. Come back again tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.